Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. We are continuing our series of messages on the I Am statements of Jesus. Jesus, seven times in the book of John, said, I am, followed by some sort of descriptor. We're going to talk about another time in John, actually today, when he used the phrase, just I am without anything. But there are seven times when he says, I am, and then filled in the blank with something there behind it. And so today we're going to look at the second instance of that in John chapter 8. Recently, I spent a couple of months ago, I guess now, um, I was uh, on our TV app system and got on YouTube. And some of you that have been on YouTube know that it bases the videos it um, suggest to you on what you've previously watched. And uh, somehow I got suggested a video that I have no idea where it came from. Just one comes out of left field. And it was a tale of a lady and her husband that live in Zvalabard. I don't even know what country that's in, but that's where it said they were. And they lived there, and she just wrote as the description... Join us as we prepare for the perpetual winter night. This place is close to the North Pole. It's one of the most northern post civilizations in the world. And when you click on the video, one of the first things she says is, The sun will soon set here at the end of October. We will be in complete darkness in the middle of November, and it will not rise until February. And my first thought to that was, nope. Not doing that, right? Can you imagine four months of darkness? Now, they do have the moon and they do have the aurora borealis, which I'm sure the northern lights are spectacular for a couple of nights. And then you're like, where is the sun? Now, to counteract that, they also have almost perpetual sun for about three months in the summer. Darkness. It's not something we normally seek out unless we're trying to find something that we don't want anyone else to know about. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but the next quarterback of the Tennessee Titans, Aaron Rodgers, that's not true. I'm just speculating, right? Just recently needed to discover what he was supposed to do with his NFL career, and he spent four days locked in a dark house. A darkness retreat. There are lots of retreats that I would desire to go on in my life. A darkness retreat for four days is not one of them. Can I get an amen in the house of the Lord? Why? Because we long for light. We've all had those moments when we wake up in the middle of the night or we're stumbling trying to find something or trying to get ready early in the morning and it's dark and you knew exactly where something was and you cannot find it without knocking everything else around you off. We are made to be people that live in the light. In John chapter 8, Jesus is teaching at one of the highest festivals of the year, the Festival of the Tabernacles. And just so you know, as we get ready to read this particular verse in John chapter 8, verse 12, The Feast of Tabernacles had two significant moments that happened in the midst of it. 
They celebrated for several days, and on the last day, they would be building towards these last significant moments. And the couple of moments that were there, one was what they called the pouring out of the water. And it was a time of rejoicing and a time of of excitement and a time of joy. It's the only festival in which God commands the people of Israel to rejoice and be joyful and be glad. And they would gather all of these things and they would have the sacrifice and they would pour the water over. And the water was to symbolize the Messiah coming, was to symbolize Jesus coming. They didn't know it was Jesus yet, but the Messiah coming to cleanse them from their sins and wash it away. And day after day in those seven days, they would pour the water and pour the water And on the last day, they would say, come now, save now, now, God. And the Bible tells us that in John chapter 7, on that last high and holy day, Jesus is teaching there and he says to them, listen, if you will follow me, you will have water that will be eternal and come from springs from within. Speaking directly to where they were in that moment. Now the second thing that they did at that festival that was a big celebration was in the court of women. They would have four huge pyres up high in the sky and they would take a ladder and the priest would take their teenagers in training and make them climb the ladders because that is how things are supposed to go. You make the teenagers do things you don't want to do yourself. Can I get a amen in the house of the Lord? So they would put their teens on the ladders and the ladders would climb to the top of these huge fires and they would pour a whole thing of oil into it and they would light it on fire and it would illuminate the entire city for days. And scripture says that as Jesus is there on this last day teaching and preparing for that particular thing, probably surrounded with the ladders already on the pyre, surrounded with the visual elements of what was happening. He says in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again and said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. Jesus speaking directly to these Jewish people that were gathered, the Israelites gathered in order to celebrate one of their high holy days where the symbolic nature would be that God would light our way, that God would provide light, that the festival of tabernacles reminds us of the provision of God, of the surety of God, that he provided us through the waters, that he also provided for us in lighting our way, that he is showing us what is happening here. He lights the way for us. Jesus steps into that place where they are looking forward to this event that would light the place up. And he says, I am the light of the world. Now for you and I, we understand the symbolic nature of that. And we think, yes, Jesus lights our way. Jesus provides us guidance. Jesus is the one that shows us how to navigate through the darkness. But to the people that were standing around listening to him that day, that would have been a bold claim that he was the tool God was using to display his own glory and to describe who he was. And they were not happy with the direction Jesus was taking this. In fact, in chapter 7 when he said he was the living water, if you will, that the living water came out of him, they were like, wait, 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 wait a minute. That's not, that's not, 
what's going on here. Are, are we sure? I mean, at the beginning of chapter 7, even his own brothers are like, Jesus, let's just stop this stuff. You know, you're not, you know, you're kind of saying some crazy stuff. And by the end of it, the Pharisees are like, wait a minute, you need to slow your roll. You're saying too much. You're being too braggadocious. You're saying too much about who you are. You can't back that up. In fact, in this particular passage, after Jesus says, I am the light of the world, anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will see and have the light of life. Some of the Pharisees have had enough. Verse 13 says, the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Now, I've told you over the last 15 years that sometimes the Bible interpreters, the the people that are writing and interpreting what the Bible passage says, what the original language says, sometimes they soften a little bit the tone of what's happening here. And what is actually being said to him is not just, hey, you're testifying about yourself. That's kind of accurately described. But what's behind the next phrase is literally, you are a fraud and a liar. And from what we have in this description, what we have understanding is that Jesus is teaching. And as he's teaching, not that he didn't sometimes teach with the kind of back and forth give and take, but that they, he is interrupted in the midst of his teaching and someone stands and says, liar, fraud. Now, I say things sometimes that you may not exactly agree with, that you may question or you may wonder about. Or think, I would have said it differently, or maybe that's not exactly, or I need to ask him about that later. But I want you to think about the level of outrage that would have to happen for you to stand up in this place and start, I'm not asking any of you to do this, but for you to stand up in this place and start to yell, liar, fraud! The Pharisee was basically saying, you can't do that. In fact, what they're quoting here is Mosaic Law, that In order to testify to something, you have to have how many people testify at least? Two. And they're saying, you're you're saying this about yourself? You can't do that. Who else will validate this? Who else will tell you this? I mean, this goes back to C.S. Lewis's old argument, right? C.S. Lewis says, if anybody says and claims the things that Jesus claimed and said, we have to come to the conclusion there are only three possibilities. Either that person is lying, a bold face, manipulative lying, that person is a lunatic, or that person is the Lord. One of our first trips to Los Angeles, I remember um, we were helping Santa Monica Church feed um, feed the homeless over on by Santa Monica Pier. And you see all the beautiful pictures of Santa Monica Pier. I mean, if you've ever been there, I mean, it is absolutely gorgeous, beautiful. The Ferris wheel, it's out in the ocean. You walk out in there, you can see for miles. It's an awesome place. And But what you don't see in those kind of pictures, unless you're there, is it is a wild kind of experience. There are people everywhere. And as you're getting ready to go onto the pier, there's an area often where there have been homeless people in the past that are panhandling or asking. And we... Um, through one of our churches, had made sandwiches, lunches, and we were just carrying them and giving them out, telling them that it's from Santa Monica Church or from the church we were working with. We love them. Jesus loves them. And we were walking along one time, and um, I may be wrong about this. You know, sometimes memory gets fuzzy. I think it was Mike Allen that gave the lunch to the guy that then claimed to be Jesus or God. I can tell you what none of us did in that moment when we when you encounter someone that claims to be God or Jesus, none of us go, oh man, that's awesome. Yeah, that's, I think you're right. We immediately think what? Something's wrong, right? 
Well, these guys are like, he, he's, he's gone off his rocker. They may not have actually thought that. That's kind of a southern thing, but you know what I mean, right? He's crazy. We've got to stop this guy. We can't let this. It's not valid. Hey, you're a liar. You're a fraud. You're testifying about yourself. You can't do that. And then Jesus says back to them this. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I come from and I know where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. Now, to understand this, you have to understand a little bit of chapter 7, because in chapter 7, he has just talked to them about the fact that he comes from the Father, that the Father had sent him, that he is God's special one that has come. And so his origin story is God, and his destination, it tells us, is something even grander. I mean, what he's basically saying to them is, my testimony is valid because it's not just me. Even if it was me, that'd be enough, because I know where I'm from, and I know where I'm going. But it's not just me. It is also the testimony of my Father, who is God, and yes, I'm referring to as Father in a way that is intimate because we are one. We are three in one, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and my testimony is valid because I am the very place that validity flows from. He's thinking about John chapter 1. John is when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is God. And so he says, I know where I'm coming from. And he also talks about the fact that he knows where his destination is. And Revelation chapter 21 verse 23 says that when we get to the new Jerusalem, when we're there, when we're living in the midst of that place, it says there will not be a need for a son because they will dwell with the Lord and the light of the glory, the existence of the glory of God will shine in such a way that the son will no longer be needed. And it says in that passage, and the lamp is the lamb. The one that is projecting the light is the Lamb of God. And so we have Jesus saying, I know where I'm from and I know where I'm going. So as a result, I am the light of the world. So what does he mean by that? A couple of references I think Jesus has in mind. Light is one of those things. John talks about light, Jesus being light of the world, over 30 times in his gospel alone. The, the concept of light is literally from Genesis chapter 1, we're going to talk about it in a minute, all the way to Revelation end. From beginning to end, light is an important theme of Scripture. Specifically, there are two places I think Jesus is referencing when he has, I am the light of the world in this setting, in this moment. And the first comes from Isaiah chapter 9. It's a place that we often think of as a Christmas passage. But in Isaiah chapter 9, Jesus says, People walking in darkness have seen a great light. And light has dawned on the living in the land of darkness. In this play out of the Festival of Tabernacles, by the way, they had... Um, one symbol that was happening in the midst of that. There was a sacrifice happening. There was a whole thing that we don't have time to get into with willow branches. And then there was the water being poured out. And in the midst of that was also another figure that they deemed the Messiah or the scarred one, the one that was to lead his people. And so in their mind would have been this idea from Isaiah of the scarred one, of the one that was promised, of the light that was coming. And Jesus looks at them and says, the light that Isaiah was talking about in his book, it is I. And this is the other place that I think he's referring to, and it's Genesis chapter 1. It's hard to get much earlier than Genesis 1-1. Amen? 
That's where it starts. In Genesis 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it tells us how. And it gives us three descriptions of the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And so the description that is given here is threefold. It tells us that when God is in the beginning of creation, and it tells us later that Jesus is there and He is part of creation. In fact, just a few verses in John 8, after he says, I am the light of the world, they continue to challenge him. They continue to say something. And he says something about Abraham. Look forward to this day when the light would dawn and the light would come. And they go, how do you know Abraham? You're like 25 years old, 30, 40 at the most. Like, how do you know Abraham? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. I've always been here. So we know Jesus at the beginning, and it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And here's why this is important, is because what is described here is the foundational element for the concept and the understanding of the word light throughout the rest of the Bible. That when God spoke and the world came into existence, when God spoke and the chaos was turned into something that was Orderly, when God spoke and form was given to the formless, when God spoke and light pierced the darkness, when God spoke and the void was filled, it was described as light. And in that moment, God forms the formless, chases the darkness, and fills the void. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, 2, and 3, it says that before God spoke, before light entered the equation, before God gave light out, created it from absolutely nothing, that the earth, that what we understand, that the universe, that everything was formless. It had no form or function. It was dark. It had no light in it whatsoever. And it was void or lacking or needing. And God spoke. And when he spoke through the creation agent of Jesus Christ, he forms the formless into the world that we know, into the universe that exists. He chased the darkness with the light that would come and he fills the void of space with stuff. So when Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 12, says, I am the light of the world. Jesus is saying, my job, my function is to form the formless. My light, or my job is the light of the world is to push back the darkness. And my job as light of the world is to fill the void. So what does that look like in our lives? The first thing is that without Christ, we are formless. And that we must trust Him to form the formless in our life. Scripture describes before anything happened, before Jesus spoke, light came out and the world was created. Before that happened, that it was a formless, functionless, purposeless, nothing kind of place. And what happened in the creation is that over those six day periods, God took the formless and formed it into something substantive and real and changed it into what he intended it to be. 
When Jesus speaks as light of the world into my life and into your life, what he's doing is he is forming us into the person, into the people that we need to be. Scripture describes those of us that are outside of the faith, or those people in the world that are outside of the faith of Christ, those of us that are in the faith before we came to faith in Christ, that we are without form, that we are not who we are intended to be, that we are outside of God's understanding and purpose and plan for our lives. And when we are saved by God, He begins this process of forming us into the people that He has called us to be, of whittling away those things that need to be whittled away, of strengthening Strengthening the things that need to be strengthening, of changing what needs to be changed, of building us into people who are following in God's plans and are in the image of, are likened unto the Son who saved us. Now in church life, we have a sophisticated word for that. We call that sanctification. Basic understanding of that is the form of growing into who God has called us to be. Now, I don't know about you, but there are sometimes in my life when I see God forming what He is forming in me, and it feels like it is a slow and painful process. And I'm like, God, let's just let's just go a little faster. I mean, I was saved when I was nine years old, and I sometimes will look at my life and say, Sometimes, a lot of times, look at my life and say, man, in the almost 40 years of living for Jesus, that ought to be done by now. And yet I'm thankful for a God who is patient and merciful and gracious to me. And he is in the process of molding me, of forming me. Think about the images in the Old Testament of God as the potter who is creating us and shaping us on the wheel in order to become the people that He has called us to be. Jesus, as the light of the world, forms the formless. The second thing that it tells us is that Jesus, as light of the world, chases the darkness. Bible describes those that are walking without Jesus, those that are walking without Christ, as walking in darkness, of stumbling in darkness, of being spiritually blind. Not being able to see, not being able to sense, not being able to understand what is happening around them. And that for those of us that have followed Jesus, it tells us in the New Testament, we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of our Father. We have been moved out of a place of not being able to see, not being able to comprehend, not being able to understand into a place where we can see, where we do have light, where our path is illuminated. The picture literally here is of what was about to happen when it was going to illuminate the night, when it was going to make the darkness flee. And when you become a follower of Jesus Christ, Our eyes are open to the reality of who He is. And if we will trust Him, He will guide us along our path. Let me also speak just to a moment to us that are believers in the room. There may be some here that aren't believers, but let me speak directly to us that are believers. One of the most dangerous things that can happen in the life of a believer, one of the things that is most debilitating to us as believers is when, after we have been enlightened, we try to keep a part of our life or a familiar sin or something that we're doing tucked away in the darkness. 
Because it is in the darkness that death and decay can get its grips into you. And what really needs to happen in our lives is that when sin occurs, when we have sin in our life, we need to bring it into the light. We need to bring it to confession to the Lord. We need to tell others about it in order to have it confessed unto the Lord and to those that we have wronged. And we need to let that live in the light of the Lord's grace and goodness and mercy. But what often happens is the opposite of that. I once heard someone say that when we sin in our lives, the first place we should run to the cross and most of us cower in fear away from it. And so, for example, someone that has begun to experiment with substance or gets hooked on something, maybe through um, legitimate means. I mean, we have a, a significant issue in our country with prescription medication abuse. Someone gets caught in that beginning phases of feeling like maybe they're out of control with this or they need it. And instead of seeking help, they're afraid. I'll lose my job. I'll lose my family. I'll do this. And so they just hide it away. They tuck it away, even from those that are closest to them. And as a result, the, the enemy is able to get their hooks into something, to, to leave a beachhead, if you will, a, a stronghold in their life, as it's described in Scripture. Foothold in Ephesians chapter 6. And it ends up bringing them further and further into the darkness and the depths. And eventually when God and His mercy reveals it, you have lost more than you ever imagined because you didn't bring it to the light to begin with. Or the man who spends time on the internet perusing and looking at things that he should never be exposing himself to. Instead of bringing that to somebody else and saying to them, hey man, I really got an issue here. We just tuck it away because I don't want to lose a family. I don't want to lose a job. I don't want to lose. And you tuck it away and you put it away and you just have it there. We hide those sins in our lives we don't want people to see and we're worried about what the consequences would be. And then when God in His mercy reveals it, You lose more than you ever imagined. The reality is, Scripture makes it abundantly clear that we as believers should no longer live in the darkness or tuck things away there. And that freedom only comes from exposing it to the light. Psalm 32, David would have known a lot about that, right? David has one of the most famous sins in the history of the world. With Bathsheba and Bathsheba's husband. In Psalm 32, he says this, How joyful is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my silent, my bones became brittle for my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as is the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When a great father has come, they will not reach him. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Jesus, as light of the world, forms the formless. He chases the darkness. And lastly, He fills the void. 
The idea behind that is simply this, that we all have a place in our lives that is longing to be filled with the mercy and the grace and the relationship with Jesus. And until we find that, we find no rest. I mentioned that several of us went to see a movie yesterday. It's probably going to end up as the third biggest movie of the weekend. They, they, never, put these, they never put the Christian movies on the projected make, but it's somewhere in the 15 to $16 million it's going to make. Any estimate you found earlier was 7 to $8 million dollars. Name of the movie is Jesus Revolution. I would recommend you go see it. Um, go, go find a theater to watch it in. If you go to Regal Streets of Indian Lake, you might wait till the previews are over. Yeah. But go. It's an awesome, awesome movie. It's basically the story of a guy named Greg Laurie. Greg Laurie is pastor of one of the largest churches in America, Harvest, uh, out in California. But it's about how he came to faith in Christ. And what most people don't know about Greg is that Greg was greatly impacted by the Jesus movement, the radical hippie Jesus movement that happened in the late 60s and the early 70s. And this movie is his story of encountering that and being there. But what also happens at the beginning of that movie is you see that he's part of a group of people in this hippie community that is literally searching for the void in their life to be filled. They have come to believe that the lives that they have been told and the lives that have been promised to them was not what was fulfilling to them. And they're searching for it and they're looking for it. And they look in all these kinds of places. They look in substances and in different um, friend groups and in music and all of this stuff. They're looking in every possible situation. And at one point in the movie, the woman that... Greg is interested in that eventually becomes his real life wife and they've been married now for over 50 years and have a great church ministry. She looks at him and she has been going to this Bible study, this church that has opened itself up to hippies and she says to him, what if this is truth? And everything we've been trying has not worked. What if this is it? It's a beautiful depiction and scene that reminds us that oftentimes when we look at the people around the world and we see the evil that's in our world, the problems that are in our world, sometimes it's easy to pass judgment on them and to blame them and it's easy to look at their stuff and go, man, I can't believe they're doing that. But what we have to come to understand is what is happening in their lives is they are simply trying to fill the void that only Jesus can fill and they will try absolutely anything to make the voices inside quiet, the the problems that they have settle because they desire that Jesus only can give them. And the people that we yell out on our screens and the people that are doing things that we're like, how could you ever? They're just simply trying to find Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world and He fills that void. One of my favorite things about this particular I am statement, and we're not going to spend a long time on this. One of my favorite things about this particular I am statement is that there is an illustration immediately that points to the reality of what's happening in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 9, you can turn over there, it's just the next chapter. This is right after he tells everybody, hey, by the way, before Abraham was, I am. In fact, that's in verse 58 of chapter 8. 
Verse 59, it says, They picked up stones to throw at him. So Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Somebody concealed him and took him out. They're ready to kill him. And it says in chapter 9, verse 1, As he was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We talked about this passage last year around this time. But the point that he's making is, Hey, something had to go wrong, Jesus. What went wrong? Why is he blind? And Jesus says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. What works are you talking about, Jesus? What's the illustration of verse 4? We must do the works of him who sent me, God again sent me, while it was day. Night is coming when no one can work. Verse 5. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And then, immediately it says, So as long as I am in the world, I am light of the world. After this, immediately, he said these things. He spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Go, he said, wash the pool of Siloam. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Jesus is the light of the world. So what did he do for this young man? What he did is he took, it tells us in Scripture, most people understand that these aren't fully developed eyes. They never develop like they ought to. There was something there that prevented their development as a child and so before he was even born. And so Jesus literally takes that which is unformed and he forms it into functioning eyes. What does Jesus do for this young man? He literally takes him from a world of darkness into a world of light. What does Jesus do for this young man? He literally fills the void spiritually that he didn't even know was there. And this young man begins to tell people about Jesus. This is the one that they will call in for questioning and they will say, what happened? What happened? And he goes, I don't know. All I know is I was blind and now I see. And your testimony, your story of redemption and grace, for those of you that are believers in this room, is the exact same story. Jesus formed us into who we were intended to be instead of what we were formless before him. He has chased the darkness from our life and given us spiritual sight so that we can understand the glory and the majesty and the love of Jesus. He has saved us and He has filled the void in our lives and given us a purpose to declare Him to the nations around us. Jesus is the light of the world. And those that believe in Him shall not walk in darkness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for today and for this opportunity we have just to respond to you as light of the world. Well, we pray that you would continue to form the formless in us, that you would continue to chase the darkness from our lives, and Lord, that you would continue to fill the void that the world tells us can only be filled outside of you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here in this room that hasn't been saved, Lord, that you would make them aware of that, that you would convict them, make them uncomfortable in this moment, and, Lord, that today would be the day they would decide to get it done, to allow you to change their lives forever. Lord, I pray for those in this room that are struggling with sin, that they've kept in the darkness, Lord, that you would help them in these days to bring it to the light to you, to confess it first to you, and then to go wherever it needs to go in order to see it eradicated from their life. To see it removed completely. We pray, Lord, 
that your will would be done in this place just as it is in heaven today in this hour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.